When you come to church, uh, read the passage that if you know what's going to be preached on that morning, read the passage ahead of time. Meditate on it. You'll get a lot more out of it. Frequently we hear people use the term postmodernism to describe the worldview that drives the attitudes and actions of so many people today. With no concept of God that we agree on, no truth that we can believe in, and no convictions to guide us except the conviction to live and let live, postmodernism has robbed us of our most precious resource, people of character. People of character. I used to tell my children when they were growing up that we were rapidly approaching an age in which a Harvard education will not be nearly as important to a prospective employer as character. Things like loyalty and integrity and honesty and hardworking, not self-serving or self-promoting, driven by a, a sense of accountability to someone higher than himself, character. Well, I fear that that day has arrived. I read that the March Madness basketball playoffs will cost employers $3.2 billion in lost productivity due to employees betting on the brackets and watching the games on their computers at work when they're supposed to be working. In fact, one news broadcast was making light of the situation. It says there's a, a special button on some programs called the boss button. You press it, and up comes a financial spreadsheet covering over the brackets. Today, employers, when they interview prospective employees, aren't nearly as interested in asking what schools they graduated from as they are in asking the questions that would get to the heart of that all-important question they really want to ask, and that is about the person's character. Is this a man or a woman of character? But postmodernism says you can't ask those kind of questions. You can't look into a person's personal history. You can't inquire about how they've lived their lives. With very few doors open to learning more about a prospective employee, where could an employer go to find employees of character? Here's some advice to you employers. Stop by the house and talk with the family. Stop by the house and talk with the family. Character is supremely important, not only in the workplace, but in sports, in politics, and in the military. In fact, few institutions have made as much about character as the military. The United States Marine Corps poster reads, we don't promise you a rose garden. The Marines are looking for a few good men. And who could forget that famous book and film that came out years ago about the astronauts, the first astronauts who really came out of the military. And the book was entitled, They Had the Right Stuff. Our God and Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, does not promise his followers either a rose garden. But he is looking for good men and good women with the right stuff to lead his people. If you have your Bible, you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 
And he writes, this is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, literally an overseer of the church, he desires a good work. He desires a good work. It is a good work to lead and take care of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because it's a good work, it requires good men, men who are qualified, qualified not on the basis of what they can do, but on the basis of what they are. They must be men of character. And so the Apostle Paul continues, a bishop, an overseer, must then be blameless, the husband of one life, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, nor covetous. Blameless is sort of the umbrella quality. He says, first of all, he must be blameless. That is, not that he must be perfectly sinless or a perfect person, but that there's no... There's nothing that you can capture about his character and say, aha, here's a man that isn't qualified. He's the church flirt or the church clown or a man who gets drunk or has fits of temper or is stingy with his money or his home. Our Lord is saying through Paul to Timothy, look for men of character. But where are we going to look? to find those good men with the right stuff. Stop by the house and get to know the people in the house. Know the family. Paul says in verse 4 and 5, this is where you need to go. And this is what you need to look for. He says, one who rules his own house well having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church, his own church of God? Let me let that just soak in a minute. If you want to know if a man has the right stuff to lead and take care of the church of God, look at his home and look at his family. Look specifically at three things. Does he rule his family? Does he rule them well? You can know the answer to that question by asking the next question. Does he have his children in submission with all reverence? Now, in our culture, just to ask such a question, it's like lighting a fuse to a bomb and it's going to blow off at any moment. But let's look at these questions more closely before we write them off. First of all, does he rule his family? Rule is a word that conjures up a lot of negative feelings. Autocratic, dictatorial, tyrant. And this is clearly not what this word means in the Bible. The word leads is probably a better term to translate the Greek word proistemi. And the word proistemi means, the word pro part of it, means to before, and the istemi means to stand. Literally, to stand before. He stands before his home. To lead the home. To make crucial decisions. To handle a crisis. To give direction. To lead his home. That's the meaning of the word rule. It's really better translated lead. 
But how is a man to stand before his family? Is he responsible simply to make arbitrary decisions? Or does his responsibility go deeper? Jump down, if you will, to verse 5, where the word rule or proistemi occurs again. Only this time, it's in a parallel structure and is related to another word, which gives more feeling for what this word really was intended to convey. Notice verse 5. For if a man does not know how to lead or rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? The word take care is parallel to the word rule or lead. And the word take care means to be concerned or to be devoted to or to give careful attention to something. Furthermore, this word has a prefix in front of it. That means it's a word with a a little beginning point that intensifies the meaning of the word. So you might translate it this way. How shall he deeply devote himself to the church of God if he isn't deeply devoted to his family? In the context of the Bible, a man who rules his own house is a man, and who rules it well, is a man who is deeply devoted to his family. He is a deeply devoted family man. The picture is of a man who goes before his family to lead them toward becoming all that God wants them to become in Jesus Christ. If they fall down, he encourages them. If they get hurt, he soothes or bandages their wounds. If they get lazy, he disciplines them. If they are confused, he proves provides wisdom. He is the kind of father that will ignore the game that's playing on Sunday morning because his commitment is to see that his children are in Sunday school and church. Whatever they need in order to be all that God wants them to be, he's there to provide it. However, this deeply devoted father who leads his family is to be more than a deeply devoted leader. He's to be a deeply devoted leader who leads well. It's not just enough to be very concerned about your family and deeply devoted to your family. You need to do it well. Paul says, look for men who are doing it well. How do we know that they're doing it well? And that takes us to the second question here. Does he lead his family well? And that actually leads into the next question. Does he have his children in subjection with all reverence? There are three key words to understanding and answering this question. First of all, children. Based on the parallel passage in Titus, Titus 1, 5 and 6, It says, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, and then listen, having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination. Children not accused of dissipation. That means not accused of wasting their lives away or on self-indulgence or personal pleasure. And... Accused of insubordination means accused of being rebellious or unruly. Clearly, the children that Paul had in mind in the context of 1 Corinthians or 1 Timothy chapter 3 as well as in Titus are children who lived at home under their parents' authority but who were old enough to know better, to model their behavior after their parents, to discipline their own lives. He's not talking about little children who march into church like little ducks behind mother and father and do exactly what they're told. He's talking about bigger children. He's talking about preteens and teens and young adults 
who have a measure of control over their own lives, but under their parents' supervision and counsel. And that takes us to the second word, submission. Oh, we hate that word, don't we? Does he have them in submission? Are these children willingly living under his authority? Do they respect their parents? Do they obey their their commands? Do they follow the counsel of their parents? Or are these children accused of wasting their lives and being unruly or rebellious? He's not talking about the teen. Listen carefully here. He's not talking about the teen who commits a serious sin or a young adult who makes a bad choice or some having trouble just getting their life together, as is so often the case when you're young. He's not even talking about the daughter who gets pregnant or the son who gets a girl pregnant. As sad as that is, a father who is worth his salt, so to speak, will lead his family through such heartbreaking tragedies and moral and personal failures toward becoming all that God wants them to be. He's not talking about the child, the young adult, the teen that makes a mistake or that has a moment in their life when they're failing and they have to be taken and gotten back on track. He's not talking about that. Rather, he's talking about the teen or the young adult who's still living at home but shaking his fist or her fist in the face of their mother and father. A child that is sold out to sin and who is becoming morally and ethically ethically insensitive. A young person who is sinking fast into a life of sin and evil, embracing the values and standards of the world around us. When a child living under a home, under authority like this, and is failing, the father of the head of the home has failed the family. Perhaps he was too busy at work. Perhaps he was just indifferent. Perhaps he was afraid to get involved. It's mom's department, so to speak. But the outcome is the same. He's failed as a father. How has he failed? He has failed to have his children in subjection. But how is he supposed to have his children in subjection, we cry out. When they're shaking his fists, their fist in his face. By failing to discipline them and, if necessary, beat them into submission? No, that's not it at all. You see, what happens as you, as fathers and children and mothers grow older, forced submission becomes less and less effective. There's got to be something beyond the fear of pain and the loss of privilege that compels a child to be faithful and loyal and obedient. What can compel that kind of submission? And that takes us to the third word, the word reverence. The old King James Version translated this word gravity. I love that because it doesn't communicate. And that's because the Greek word here in the language of the New Testament is a word that is very, very difficult to translate into our language. And I think the the old King James did a better job because it doesn't communicate except one thing. Weightiness. And that's why the word gravity. The word here has the thought of heavy, serious. A word which was felt deeply. It is a word that spoke of lofty things which commanded attention. Things which turned heads and made people stand in awe. Like the the parade of a 
of the majesty of royalty in days gone by when the king and queen and all the attendants would march by the people and they would bow their knee and there was a sense of pageantry and weightiness of such a thing. In this passage, it refers to the character of the father, which should be strongly felt throughout the home. It was a character that commanded respect and loyalty and obedience. This is what it means to say when it says, look for a man who is the father of a home and who has his children in submission with all gravity. In a sense, the same things could be said of a mother. Where do you find a man or a woman with the right stuff? Again, we ought to stop by the home and talk to the family. When it comes to a father leading a family, character is the bottom line. And when it comes to an overseer leading a church, character is the bottom line. But what does that character look like? The world values character. The world, for instance, values ambition. And many people in the world value the kind of person who would step on his own mother to get ahead. God does not value that kind of character. What kind of character does God value? At this time, our youth pastor, Dan Robb, is going to come and share with us thoughts about the kind of character that God values. And then following him will be Neil continuing that. First Timothy chapter three, verse 15. First Timothy chapter three, verse 15. Uh, Henry David Thoreau said, "A man receives only what he is ready to receive." And so when I read that quote, I called up my dad and I said, "What does this mean?" And he said, "Well, at age 30, I wish I knew everything that I know now at 65." And so in thinking about that, I was reminded of First Timothy chapter three, verse 15, which says this. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, Timothy was a young guy starting out in ministry, and Paul was an older guy who was nearing the end of his ministry. And he was writing this book just to give Timothy some practical help as far as what he needed to do in the ministry. And if you look over at uh, 4.12 in 1 Timothy says this, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Let no one despise your youth, meaning don't let people look down on you, Timothy. Timothy was going to be dealing with a very difficult situation there because a lot of the people in his church were going to be older than he was. And so the tendency would be, why do we need to listen to this young guy? And so Paul was saying, hey, don't forget what they're going to think about you Don't give them that opportunity, but rather be an example to everyone else, meaning be a model, be a standard that everybody can look at at you. Now, how is he supposed to be that example? Well, it says there, he was supposed to be an example in word, meaning his speech, his conversation, uh, those kinds of things. In fact, in chapter 1, he talks about how he urges Timothy to preach sound doctrine. So he was supposed to be an example in his doctrine as well. Now, James chapter 3, verse 4, says this about the tongue. It says, Look also at ships, although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, 
They are turned by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot desires. Verse 5 says, So the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. Hey, if we don't master our tongue and the things that we say, then we can really can get the best of us. But not only should we be an example in our word, but we should also be an example in our behavior. And that just means, or rather our conduct, which means our behavior. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, Paul uses the word conduct there. And he says, hey, you should throw off the former conduct of your life. And then in later a couple of verses, he says, you should put on the new man. And the idea there is that it's your lifestyle that you're living by. So I guess the question is, what, are, what do people think of us that are at our office or think of us at our at where we go and we play, or where are people in our home? What do they think of us? What is our reputation? Is our reputation of one of, oh no, here comes this person. And everything, everything drops. Everyone gets quiet. You know, it's like you walk in the party and the record player goes, and everyone looks at you, you know, something like that. Uh, what would people think of us in that light? But also, we shouldn't just be an example in our word, in our conduct, but lastly, also, in our love. And actually, uh, Matthew chapter 22, verse 39, has this to say about that. He says, And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Plato said, At the touch of love, every man becomes a poet. And I think he's right in a lot of ways because I was reminded of a guy I went to college with. This guy had terrible hair. He just never combed it. He, uh, he had horrible breath. I don't know if he ever brushed his teeth or anything like that. He, uh, he wore suspenders and a belt. I guess he was just trying to be careful that his pants never fell down, just in case. You know, you can never be too careful with those things. Uh, he just was sloppy. He couldn't match. Uh, he didn't realize that you're supposed to button the top two buttons, every button. I'm just kidding. Uh, but he, uh, it's an inside joke with Neil. But this guy, I mean, I thought for sure this is one guy that's never going to get married. He's never going to find somebody. And what? He found somebody. And it was amazing because when he started dating this girl, things started changing. Like he started, uh, his words and the things that he started saying, I mean, he, was, he would quote these great, you know, love poetry stuff to this girl on the, over the phone. And then he started combing his hair. And I had to do a double take every time I saw him because something else was changing about him. And I believe what Plato was trying to say is, hey, you know, at the touch of love, every man becomes a poet. Every person is able to do things that maybe they weren't normally able to do. Just as, as Paul is saying here, you know what? If you have love, if you're loving your neighbor as yourself, you're going to be able to have the words. You're going to be able to have the behavior. Those things are going to be easier for you. You know, it's going to be easier to love your neighbor who uh, takes your lawnmower all the time and uses it to try and trim his hedges and never returns it. Or you're going to be able to love that paper boy who keeps throwing that paper all the way on top of the roof of your house. You're like, ah. Or if you were like me growing up, you had spam night every week. And I didn't like that at all. But you're going to be able to love your wife or you're going to be able to love whoever's ever doing the cooking or wife. You're going to be able to love your husband if he does that for some reason. You know, as, as <laughs> character is very important. And as people of character, we need to remember that love should also be the thing that we should want to do. The first two, the words and the conduct, they deal with our outward, but love deals with our inward as well as our outward as well. And we need that so much.
try that again. There we go. Uh, thank you, Dan. Dan was in uh, 1 Timothy 4.12, and I want to continue in 1 Timothy 4.12. So if you're not already there, go ahead and turn back to 1 Timothy 4.12. And you'll look up there, you'll see the, the three character qualities uh, that Dan was describing. Word, conduct, and love. And now we're coming to three other character qualities in this list that Paul gives to Timothy as an indication of what Timothy can focus on to be a good pastor, to be a good man, to be a man of character. And let's take a look at these final three elements. The first one is this, in spirit. In spirit. Now, we're in the New King James right now. And if you'll notice from your New King James Bibles, if you have that, spirit is probably not capitalized in your Bibles. And I'd like to make the case that it should be capitalized. And... Uh, this, this, wor- this word, this construction is in pneumatai or pneumati. And in Greek, this construction can be translated in the spirit. It can be translated by the spirit. And it can also be translated with the spirit. But here's why I would venture to say that it should be considered the Holy Spirit. Because out of the 17 times that Paul uses the construction in pneumati, 16 times it refers to the Holy Spirit. And so it would be very awkward if this case also did not refer to the Holy Spirit. And what do we mean by being in spirit, in the Holy Spirit? I would suggest that Paul is referring to walking according to the Spirit of God. Walking according to the Spirit of God. In Romans 8, 1-2, Paul says this, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Walking in the Spirit. Striving with the Spirit of God and not walking in a worldly fashion. Being conscious of the Spirit's renewing of your mind. Guiding us, the Spirit guiding us in our day-to-day lives. Seeing the world through God's lenses. Actively seeking to imitate Christ in all circumstances. This is walking in the Spirit. This is what I would suggest is in pneumatee. In spirit, according to what Paul's telling Timothy here. He's saying, walk in the spirit, strive with the spirit, be conscious of the spirit of God and his leading in your life. Be mindful of that. But notice also at the end, he says that you will be what? Free. This brings freedom. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. You know, this word freedom is kind of interesting because two chapters earlier, Paul had talked about in chapter 6 of Romans how we are slaves of sin prior to receiving Christ. We are slaves of sin as unregenerate people. Slaves of sin. Jesus also said, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin in John chapter 8. And sin indeed is like slavery. You know, oftentimes I think we get the idea that 
in our Christian walk, I'm going to button the bottom button for Dan. In the Christian walk, I, I think we sometimes get the idea that if we can't sin, we're somehow impeded. Or if, if we're not supposed to sin, then that means that, oh, I can't do as much as I'd like to do in my life. We think that if we don't have a license to sin, the ability to sin, then, well, perhaps we're kind of constrained of sorts. We don't have a free life. But really, the opposite is true. The Bible says that when you're in sin, you're a slave. When you're in sin, you're a slave to that sin. And you're not free. We have a deep desire for freedom as people. Our nation, our president always speaks of freedom. It's something that, that we hold dear as a nation and as a people. We know that we want freedom, but what we sometimes don't realize is that by withdrawing from sin, we are actually more free. We are not suffocated by sin. We are not held down and chained by sinful habits. The Bible says you want to be free? Walk in the Spirit. That is where you will find freedom. That is where you will be truly free. Let's look at the second character quality. He says that I want you, Timothy, to be in faith. In faith. And Paul also uses this a number of times, this construction in faith. He wants, to believe, he wants Timothy to be an example in faith. Now, what does that mean? Uh, I would suggest two things. First, it means this, that you should be experiencing growth and maturity in your faith. Experiencing growth and maturity in your faith. That means cultivating your faith. I've listed some references there if you want to see how Timothy, uh, how Paul uses that in other cases. But it's a cultivation, a fostering of faith. If your faith in Christ is not cultivated, your character will be diminished. Let me say that again. If your faith, if you do not cultivate your faith, promote it, study, study the Word of God, commune with God, cultivating that faith that you've placed in Christ, if that's not nurtured, your character will suffer. And secondly, it means being aligned with the solid teaching of the faith. Knowing right from wrong when it comes to doctrine and Scripture's teaching. Aligning yourself with the truth of the faith. This is being in faith. Nurturing your faith. Oddly enough, one-third, 33% of the time that Paul uses the word faith he, in 1 Timothy... He refers to it as something that went sour. Take a look at this. Next slide. Paul also speaks of people who shipwreck their faith, depart from the faith, people who denied the faith, cast off the faith, and strayed from the faith. Let this be a warning to, you, to all of us. We can commit these errors. Our soul will be saved. God is faithful. He will not deny us. But our faith can be strayed from. We can depart from our faith 
if we do not cultivate it and nurture it. And our character will be diminished as a result of that. Our faith is susceptible if it's not nourished. And Jesus has some real practical advice on this, how to nurture your faith. Look at John 8, 31 and 32. Then Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, he said, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Then you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you what? Free. The word abide means a settled determination to live in the word of Christ. Listening to it, reflecting on it, holding fast to it. And what will happen if you abide in the Word? If you abide in Christ's Word, in the Word of God, it says you'll be free. That Word comes up again and again in Scripture saying, if you, if you cultivate faith, if you cultivate a spiritual person, you will be free. You will be a slave if you widen the parameters and go seek after sin. Nurture your faith for personal growth. Now let's look at the final one. Impurity. Impurity. 1 Timothy 4.12 Paul wants Timothy to be an example in purity. And purity here means uh, just what it says. Moral purity, character, integrity. Howard Hendricks, uh, one of Pastor Arch's old profs at Dallas Theological Seminary, said this about character. He said, the test of integrity is how you behave when no one is watching. That's just a great quote. You know, it's, it's one thing to have a reputation. It really is. It's one thing to have a reputation that people look upon you and think, well, he's, he's got a good reputation. But character is different than reputation. Character is something that when you're all alone and by yourself and in the dark, if you will, it's how you behave when no one is watching. You know, there, there are a lot of sins that men deal with today. I think that men are dealing with sins today that on a level today that I don't think perhaps men have dealt with in the past. Now, I, I can't be sure of that, but, but I think that there are some advances in our culture and in technology and in, in industry that have made men have to deal with even more, if you will, in the 21st century. Things like sexual sins, pornography, now no longer in a magazine but on the Internet at the click of a button. Do you know that four out of five men, according to statistics, four out of five, that's 80%, men have been exposed to Internet pornography? Now that is a weighty statistic. Four out of five men, 80% have been exposed to internet pornography. Adultery, divorce, half of all marriages end in divorce. There's financial sins, luxury. Boy, luxury, that's something we deal with in Orange County, isn't it? Greed. Exploitation, gluttony, anger, and a, a new one I'm seeing more and more 
along with, I think these are the two that I see as the, the big problems of men, is pornography, and the second is just sluggishness. Men today, in my estimation, and as I look at my own life, tend to err on the side of laziness. They're sluggish. They're slothful. They're not as active, if you will, as they were in years past. I've listed some of these. um, Certainly not an exhaustive list, but I, I want you to take a moment. I want to give you a minute. I want to give you a minute just to think for yourself right now, man or woman. Identify something that you're struggling with. Identify a sin in your life right now. Take a moment and consider what it is in your life that is causing you to suffer, that is impeding your walk with God, something that you know habitually you are inclined to do. What is it? What is that sin? And now I want us to, I want you to keep that in your mind. And I want you to consider some of the ways in which we can become men and women of godly character. How can I become a man of godly character? Keeping that sin in your mind, I want to give you some suggestions, some very practical suggestions from the Bible. And these these come in two forms. One, there's a proactive form. There's a proactive measure in which you can avoid sin and develop character. And there's also a reactive measure in which you can avoid sin and develop character. The first is actually not on the screen, but I wanted to bring it up. And that is this. Find a godly discipler. Find someone in your life. If you are struggling in sin, in character development, identify, and even if you're not, this is a good pattern of life because it's riddled throughout Scripture. Paul to Timothy. Okay, Paul was Timothy's discipler. Find someone in this church who can disciple you, who can mentor you. You know the old phrase, behind every good man is a good woman? Well, I also think it's true that behind every good man is another good man. Because men sharpen each other when they meet together. Elders, that's their job, to disciple you. And I know that the elders of this church would be more than happy to sit down with you and discuss how you can continue to develop your character and combat the wiles of the devil. That's what they're here for. Use our elders. A word of caution, though, is, and, and I hesitate to say this, but I do want to say it anyhow, and that is don't put these, these men and these women who you have as disciples too, too high up on a pedestal. I had two professors who taught me how to be a pastor and a theologian and a, a, a person who studies the Word of God, and uh, both these men fell into sexual impurity while I was in school and had to leave their positions. It's unfortunate, but it occurs. We need disciples, but don't put them up too high on a pedestal. Keep in mind that they're human and that they will err just as much as you and I sometimes. But we can learn from them. There are good, godly men and women in this church that I respect and love, and I desire to learn from them. Now a little bit more according to the Word of God. Proactively, what can you do? The first, I would say, Bible intake. Okay, we've been talking about this, but it is so, it is so true. 
Bible intake is so important for character development. Psalm 119 says this, How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. How can we cleanse? How can we avoid sin? By taking heed according to God's word. Bible intake, I cannot stress it enough, is a crucial element to you being a man or woman of character. You've got to be in the word of God. Secondly, prayer. Jesus, when he was praying in the garden, was with his disciples. And notice what he said to them. He said right before his, his, his arrest and death by crucifixion, he says to the disciples, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Even the Lord's prayer, a prayer that we often recite, includes a reference to temptation. Lord, lead us not into temptation. Prayer is a means by which you and I can develop character and to keep clear of sin. What about some reactive measures? As we're going through life, are there ways we can develop character reactively? The first, I would say, is this. It's how you respond to suffering. How do you respond to suffering? Paul says, we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Now, I don't know about you, but glory in tribulations is very awkward. That means to literally to almost praise God for the fact that you have a struggle. To praise God for the fact that you are experiencing tribulation. If you can cultivate that attitude, that will develop character. That's what Paul says. Cultivating an attitude that says, God, no matter what comes my way, be it, a, uh, be it an accident, a job loss, dealing with a disease in my family, whatever it takes, Father, I will honor you. I will glory in my tribulations. I will look at you and say, thank you, Father, because I know that you are going to make me a person of character out of this experience. How do you respond to suffering, to tribulation? And finally, how can we react have a reactive measure. We need to watch our response to temptation. This is kind of the culmination of this. But there's good news about temptation. All of us experience temptation. Even Christ experienced temptation. But 1 Corinthians 10.13 says this, that no temptation, none, has overtaken you except what is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not, look at this, He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But... With that temptation, he will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Temptations can be overcome. Temptations can be overcome. There is a way of escape in every temptation. There is the possibility in every temptation for you to find a way out. And we can also look at this in a proactive way, and that is avoid tempting circumstances. If you're inclined to internet pornography, you need to do something about your computer. 
If you're inclined to drinking, you need to avoid being in circumstances where there's going to be alcohol. Simple. This is both proactive and reactive. But you know also there's a reward for standing up in the face of temptation. James says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. It's never too late to start developing moral purity. It is ne- Let me say that again. It is never too late to start developing moral purity. Some of you may be thinking, you know what, I've really gone down a bad path for a long time. I just remind you about the author of 1 Timothy, Paul. This man went down the worst path. Persecuted Christians, blasphemed God. He was stubborn. He did not respond to the truth of God's Word until Christ appeared to him and said, okay, it's time to make it right. And Paul turned his life around. Being the chief of sinners, he turned his life around and started that day on the Damascus Road to follow Christ. And I think we would all recognize that Paul turned out to be one of the greatest Christians of all time. It's never too late to start developing this. John Wooden, in closing, John Wooden, a great college basketball coach and player, he coached the UCLA Bruins. He was such an amazing coach that the team went to unmeasurable heights that no team in, any, in the history of sports has ever attained. Under John Wooden, the UCLA Bruins set all-time records with four perfect seasons. Four perfect seasons. They had 88 consecutive victories at one point in time. They had 38 straight NCAA tournament victories. They had 20 Pac-10 championships. The UCLA Bruins under John Wooden won 10 national championships, including seven in a row. He was a great coach, one of the best of all time. And John Wooden said this about character. He said, be more concerned with your character than with your reputation. Your character is what you really are while your reputation is merely what others think you are. Again, I encourage you, don't don't try to fool God. Don't try to fool men. Your character will be revealed. At the judgment seat of Christ, we will all receive reward for the measure of our character. I encourage you to consider how you can develop your character. Again, Paul says, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, that as we consider our character, as we consider character development, that we have the greatest example of all to follow.